Expect great things. Attempt great things. Expect great things. Attempt great things. William Carey, who has often been called the father of modern missions, said these words because of his unshakable conviction that God had promised to build the church. And he expected to see God do that. And he attempted to be part of that work. He believed that God's promise to build the church was equal to God's command to go and share the gospel. And Carey took that so seriously that he organized a missionary society and moved his family to India. In a few moments, I want to give you a little bit more of a description of his life. But before I do that, often when we look at the examples of truly great people, it's easy for us to play the sort of role of Satan in the book of Job. And what, what do I mean by that? I mean, Satan goes before God. And God says to him, have you seen my servant Job? No one is like him. And Satan says, he loves you because you bless him. Take away his blessings and he's just like everyone else. And as we read the book of Job, we find out that's actually not true. God takes away Job's blessing and his character remains consistent. He wrestles with God. And so the man that God said, have you seen my servant Job? Really was a faithful believer. I think it's easy for us when we hear the example of faithful believers like William Carey to say, he loves you because you bless him. You've blessed him with a brilliant mind. You've blessed him with schooling. You've blessed him with a specific set of circumstances that made him uniquely fit to that work. I don't have his blessing, so I can't do what he did. And I want to beg you this morning, as we look at the examples of faithful people, one of them being William Carey, to have an open heart and an open mind. And to be inspired by them. And to not say they're exceptional because of their gifts, abilities, and circumstances. And I could never do something like that. The reality is God has given you gifts and abilities and has called you to service. And so as Carrie said, expect great things and attempt great things. That's not just for him in the past. That's for us today and for the future. That's for the church here in Holly. I want to encourage you today, as we have seen in Philippians, Paul sets an example, and he says, become imitators of me, and fix your eyes on people who are faithful. I want to encourage you to look at some faithful people that you know. I want to encourage you to find some examples to follow, some of them living, some of them dead. I want to encourage you to keep your eyes on godly people and imitate them. William Carey is an example of someone who is long dead. But he has left an incredible legacy. He did not have an impressive background. He was the apprentice to a shoemaker. Not the son of a pastor. Didn't grow up in a great church. He first heard the gospel as a young man. 
He wasn't even a Christian as a child. And he was so enthusiastic about his faith, even though he was never well-educated and he never went to college, he borrowed a Greek grammar and taught himself Greek in his spare time as an apprentice to being a shoemaker. And I just like to pause as someone who studies Greek. Grammars are not written like textbooks. This is not an easy task. There are no exercises at the end of your regular Greek grammar. It's dense. It's difficult to understand. And he applied himself as a shoemaker without an education and learned Greek. He struggled to make a living. He did not come from a wealthy family. He and his wife struggled to pay their bills. And they actually lost their first child when he was two. He worked a regular job. He had the heartache of losing a child. But he clung to his faith. And as he continued to work as a shoemaker, he learned Hebrew and Latin in addition to Greek. He heard about earlier missionaries, the the Moravian brothers, and I'm not going to say a word about those guys. But he recognized from their missionary example that the church that he attended wasn't doing anything to spread the gospel around the world. As he continued his studies and continued to learn, he eventually became ordained to ministry. So he felt called to be a pastor. And at a meeting of Baptist leaders in the late 18th century, he argued publicly that the church needed to send missionaries to places like India. Now he's, he's living in the late 17th century. And he's reading stories like Jonathan Swift and hearing about the adventures that people have going around the world, many of them for the first time, discovering new places really just for monetary profit. And he's inspired by their adventures, but recognizes that the church has a global mission and his church wasn't fulfilling it. So he says to a meeting of Baptists, we need to step up and do this. And he was told by his elders, young man, sit down. You are an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen, he'll do it without consulting you or me. Less than a warm reception. I was asking Dory Nielsen last Wednesday about people that inspired her, people that were examples for her. She mentioned this episode in particular. She said, William Carey, when they told him to sit down, he didn't sit down. Instead, he founded a society for foreign missions. And if you've ever been part of a society or an organization, bureaucratic, the bureaucratic machine moves painfully slow. Meetings are boring, often lack purpose. That was not what his society was like. Within a year, he and his family, three young boys and a pregnant wife, were on a boat to India. Twelve months from their first meeting, they sent their first missionaries. But that was not the beginning of a long and glorious story. Things actually got so bad after they went to India, they struggled to find employment. Because they were committed to the idea that they wanted to work within India rather than have monetary support from at home. And they struggled to pay their bills in India just like they had in England. And things got so bad, one of the men who went with him deserted and went home. So Carey felt abandoned. And yet at the same time, his faith encouraged him. He still believed God had promised to build the church. His family life continued to be difficult. 
They actually lost a son who was five years old because of many of the diseases and, and illnesses that come with living in a tropical climate. He contracted malaria. And they worked for seven years without seeing a single person trust Christ as Savior. Can you imagine after year five, you wonder if you're having any effect? You wonder if maybe those guys that told you to sit down were right? They kept going, and for two years after that, they were faithful. Faith in God's promise and his expectation that God would do great things kept him faithful. And I I don't have time to tell you all the details of his life. It's a mixture of truly horrible sorrows and incredible glory-filled triumphs. And I'm going to skip to some of those incredible glory-filled triumphs. By the grace of God, before Kerry died, his team saw roughly 700 people repent and be baptized. These were people, they were Hindus, they were Muslims, they were people who had never heard the gospel before. They translated the entire Bible into six native languages. At this time, linguistics didn't even exist. He couldn't go to a school to learn how to be a linguist, to learn how to be a Bible translator. He literally wrote the book on Bible translation. They founded a school to train some of those 700 converts for ministry because they believed that the most lasting and effective ministry would be run not by Europeans, but by native Indians. And today, that school was founded in 1818. It's 199 years today. They have an enrollment of 2,500 students. The school that he started 199 years ago is still training people for the ministry of the gospel. He has an incredible lasting legacy. His obedience to go to the mission field inspired generations of people like Adoniram Judson, a very famous American Baptist missionary, and people like Dory Nielsen, who goes to our church here. He did all of those things without a college education, without coming from a great Christian home or being raised in a great Christian church. His church told him, don't go. He never went to school to study languages. He just expected great things, and he attempted great things. And he saw God work miracles. I believe William Carey is a faithful example of the type that Paul tells us to follow. In our remaining time this morning, I want to look at the commands that Paul gives us in Philippians. And I want to look at his reasoning forgiving the command. And my prayer is that we will obediently, as we have been instructed in Philippians, fix our eyes on Christ-like people and follow their example. Read the text with me starting in Philippians chapter 3, verse 17. And if you don't have a Bible this morning, one of the blue Bibles has this passage on it on page 981. Or if you have one of the burgundy Bibles, those are large print. You can find this on page 1166. So 981 in the blue Bibles, 1166 in the large print Bibles. Read with me starting at verse 17 of Philippians chapter 3. Paul says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. You can see Paul's first command in verse 17. His command is to imitate faithful people. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. This is my first point this morning, the command, imitate faithful people. In two ways, Paul commands us as believers to imitate more mature believers. He says, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example that you have in us. So there are two components to this. One of them is active and practical, and the other is mental and foundational. First, if you are going to imitate someone, you need to change your behavior in specific ways. And I'll say more about this in just a few minutes as I talk about some of the examples that I've benefited from. The first, there are practical actions that need to be taken. So as Carrie says, attempt great things, actually do something. Second, if you're going to focus on someone, you need to avoid distractions and actually seek out details and information from their life. So focusing on anything takes mental discipline. And honestly, we are very terrible at mental discipline as 21st century Americans. We are very gifted at paying attention to several things, but not to any of them very well. And so I want to suggest to you today that one of the things that we should do based on this passage is build our ability to focus, to really look at one thing and follow after it. Our poor ability to focus is no excuse. We can grow. And I want to encourage you to make a plan and to commit some time to focusing on a specific example. If your example is living, so you can't call William Carey, he's dead. But if your example is living, you can spend time with him or her. You can pick up the phone and and make a phone call. One of the examples I'm going to tell you about in just a moment, I called on the phone yesterday because I knew a few details, but I wanted more specific ones. And so I, I was able to call him and he fortunately answered and I had a fantastic conversation with him. That's what I mean when I say focus. It means that you're going to pick up your phone and call someone. Or you're going to go out for a cup of coffee. Or you're going to sit down on your front porch and talk to them. When you focus on an example, you are learning details that give you the ability to imitate. Our scripture reading today was a reminder that Timothy, as a younger Christian, followed Paul's example faithfully, as well as the example of his mother and his grandmother. And in the past, we've read Hebrews chapter 11, that incredible chapter that reminds us of what God has done through faithful people. And we can find many biblical examples that are inspiring, that urge us to believe God, that urge us to obey him. But I wanted to also be faithful to think about examples that are alive today, examples that you can point to, that you can call on the phone. And I thought of honestly too too many to mention. Some of them are ancient heroes who are long dead. And some of them are parts of the churches that I was part of growing up. And I just want to mention a few. Some of the ones who have passed away who are now in heaven. I thought of moms like Susanna Wesley. Susanna Wesley was the mother of 19 children. Only nine of which were living when she died. 
She taught her children Latin and Greek, and she gave them a spiritual heritage. Her husband was away very often, and she wrote him a letter. And you wonder, how do you manage 19 children? She made a schedule. She made a schedule so that once a week, she would have one-on-one time with every one of her children so that she would know how each of them was doing. She was disciplined to make sure that she taught them the faith. She's known as the mother of the Methodist denomination because of how much her boys Charles and John learned from her. And I I have a lot of other dead heroes, guys like Irenaeus, Athanasius, Augustine, John Wycliffe, Martin Luther, John Calvin, William Tyndale, John Bunyan. It's a long list. That's the condensed version. But I didn't know any of those people. So let me mention some of the people that I've known. In middle school, I had a Sunday school teacher named Ethel Danford. She was a mean old woman. She made us learn the books of the Bible without singing. We learned the song in primary church, and she said that was for little kids. It's time to grow up. She taught us the Ten Commandments. She taught us the Apostles' Creed, and she recited, she recited Pilgrim's Progress to us. This is not a short book. She was not well-liked by most of the kids she taught. She'd had a hard life. She was divorced. She had been, by some accounts, a failed missionary, had gone to serve and had to come home. But there are a few hundred kids who know a whole lot more about the Bible because of her, and I'm one of them. In junior high, I had Garrett Hansen. Garrett's wife had left him to raise their kids. He was a single dad. And even as a kid, it was obvious to me how much that still hurt him. But he was faithful to the Lord. He didn't become bitter. He served. He was a fantastic junior high Sunday school teacher. He taught us how to lob grenades with beanbags. And then we would sit down for Bible study. I thought of Paul and Midge Clinky. They had a son who was 12 years old when he was hit by a drunk driver and killed. The following year, they were my junior high youth group leaders. And they took us through the book of Job. And we learned how to help someone in grief. In high school, I had the example of a guy named Emery Anstett. Before he was a Christian, Emery was a foster kid who liked smoking pot. But he trusted Christ and he changed Pot smokers are not very industrious. Emery is one of the hardest working men I know. He was a faithful youth leader. He gave me opportunities to teach. He was a fantastic instigator. He, he would needle me and get me upset so that I would work. He'd give me books to read, sermons to listen to, not even that he necessarily agreed with, just that he knew that would rile me enough to dig deeper into the scriptures. I I don't want to go long. I'm afraid that I might. But one of the sermons he gave me uh, on a cassette tape was actually sort of hilarious. It It was on the evils of rock and roll. And the guy that preached it, I don't think actually understood the Bible at all. And Emery didn't give it to me because he agreed with it. Emery gave it to me because he knew as a junior high kid it would make me really irritated and I would study the scriptures. 
He was creative. He now does maintenance work at the Rock. He's a bricklayer by trade. You might think that he went to, to college or something like that. He went to Word of Life Bible Institute for a single year, but he's not an egghead. He's a guy that still works with his hands. He does maintenance over at the Rock in Fenton. And he's gone from being a foster kid to being a foster parent. And for the entire time I've known him, he has not only been following the Lord, he has been leading other people to do the same. I'm not the only guy that he kind of helped move along in their walk with the Lord. He's doing that now with his foster kids and anyone else he can get a chance to serve with. In college, I was blessed by Dr. Rosalie de Rosé, the professor that we named our Rosie after. She never married. She has demonstrated an iron will and a tender faith. Through great literature, she helped me understand grace. And she's a mom to a lot of Moody students. As a young adult, I was blessed with people like Elmer Towns and Ian Leitch. Those are guys that I've never actually personally met. I heard them preach at Moody Church when we lived in Chicago. And both of them preached messages on how to pray. And both of them were very honest about the practicalities of having a consistent prayer life. Ian actually used a prayer book that scheduled how to pray for people with faithfulness and regularity. And it's something that I have imitated. I have a prayer book in my office that I'm currently still updating because the first one that I did is now out of date. But it lets you see when God has answered prayer. And so following his example, I've learned how to pray a little better. Elmer is another great guy. He, he focused on praying the scriptures. And because of his example, I've learned how to pray scripture a little bit better. I thought of couples like Rich and Barb Carnath from Moody Church. Rich is the guy that I called yesterday. He came to Moody Church as a non-Christian in 1973. He went there because he heard it was a great place to meet girls. That was 44 years ago. Rich was an architect by trade, and he told a story that I'll never forget about learning to trust God. He said as a, as a young Christian, as a young dad, he was struggling to find employment, and he had to break into his kid's piggy bank so that he could pay parking downtown while he was trying to look for work. You don't feel good as a dad borrowing money from your kid. One of the things that got him through that was he had been challenged to be part of a three-man Bible study. And he said for between 15 to 20 years, they met twice a month and then later once a month. And they encouraged each other with prayer and with honest talk. So you had two godly men that you could say, you know what, I'm still out of work. You know what, I broke my kid's piggy bank so that I could go pay for parking downtown. He said that challenge was so that they would have accountability and people to pray with. He told me another story that, that one of their children, their youngest son, was not really growing up in the faith, was not being a faithful believer. And he said, so in high school, he committed, they said, several days a week before going to school, he would actually read through the Bible with them. They started in Genesis. He said, we didn't go through every book. But he said his son said to him, this seems like a bunch of disconnected stories to me. And honestly, he didn't know what to make of it, didn't know if it was really true. So as a dad... He didn't freak out. He didn't get mad. Didn't tell him what he had to believe. He sat down with him before breakfast every day and took him through the scriptures. He's an example of a faithful man. You know, he's not like William Carey. Nobody outside of Chicago and the few people that are here today have heard his name or know who he is. 
But he's a faithful man that I can look at and become a more faithful man because of his example. Here in our church, you've had examples of people like Mary Alice Lacey. I mentioned her on Mother's Day. And I thought as I prepared this sermon of Pastor Jack, who faithfully loved Arlette when she had dementia. He is an example of unfailing, patient, tender love. He's a man that you can follow his example. These are people who have been faithful to the Lord in many different ways. And I wanted to mention a lot of people because my hope is that it will remind you of people who have inspired you in the faith. Not everyone is called to be a missionary. Some guys are called to actually continue being shoemakers. Some people are called to be faithful moms. All of us should be able to say, this is my example. I am more like Christ because they showed me what it would look like for a mom to be like Christ. Paul instructs us to keep our eyes on people like this because as we seek to follow the Lord, we will face opposition, both from within and from without. And Paul writes about the enemies of our faith in verses 18 through 19 of Philippians. And this is his first reason for focusing so intently on good examples. He says, there's no future outside of Christ. Look at verses 18 and 19 together with me. He says, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. The enemies of the cross of Christ are described in three ways. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and their glory is in their shame. They don't come out and tell you, hey, I'm opposed to Jesus. They're subtler than that. Some of them claim to be Christians. But they just get distracted with things that won't last on here. And it could be material possessions. When he mentions earthly things, a lot of people take pride and comfort in a house that won't last long. If you volunteered with Christmas in Action, you know that without costly and faithful maintenance, houses fall apart very quickly. If we're investing so much in a home here, we should realize it's a foolish waste compared with eternity. Not that you should let your home fall apart, but that your priorities should be more towards investing in eternal things than in things that will not last. He mentions their God is their stomach and they have fleshly desires. You know, there are a couple ways that our bodies can mess with us. You can either be a slave to your passions, things that you long for and desire, or you can be a slave to trying to take care of it, to, to build it up, make it stronger. You can flee aches and pains in a way that's obsessive. Paul says, your body's not going to last. Don't let it be the thing that runs your life. Your earthly body and material possessions are bound for certain destruction. And if that's what you invest in, you are certain to lose your life's work. And those three things contrast with the life of the believer in the next section that he he goes here in, in Philippians. Our end is in heaven, which will never be destroyed. Our God is not our stomach. We don't worship our bodies. We know our bodies are fallen and we are waiting for them to be made new. And we don't glory in sinful behavior. We glory in the return of Jesus Christ and his power. And each of the people that I've mentioned have had temptations to settle into a comfortable life here. To enjoy the pleasures of this world and to neglect our savior and future hope. But each of them instead invested in eternity. 
As a dad, it's easy to just give up and write off your kid that doesn't seem to carry about Christ. But instead, he chose to invest in his son. For the sake of time, I, uh, I just want to mention William Carey again. A, a lot of his fellow church members told him it was foolish and unnecessary to move to India, and even theologically wrong. And it cost him the life of two of his children, and he buried two wives while he lived there. Life in England would have been safer, healthier, and probably more prosperous. But he didn't put his own personal desires ahead of his calling. His hope and confidence was in Jesus Christ, and he lived it. His hope was in the future, which is Paul's second reason for telling us to focus on good examples, because they point us to what really matters in our future hope. So his second reason for fixing our eyes on faithful examples and imitating them is Christ is our powerful future hope. Look with me at verses 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and from it we await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. Because these two passages contrast so powerfully those who walk as enemies of the cross and those who await a future salvation at the return of the Lord, they're intended to be a, a contrast I've actually already said a lot about these verses comparing the difference between the enemies of the cross of Christ and those who wait for the return of the Lord. But let me say this. I was reading a commentary by a guy named Alec Motyer, and he pointed out something incredible that I, I missed, and that these four verses are obviously supposed to contrast with each other. Those in, in 18 and 19 talk about their God being their stomach, here in 20 and 21, it talks about we wait for a future body that will be raised when Jesus returns. So there is passing away and in glory, and there is a future expectation and hope and confidence in Christ. But what doesn't match is the phrase enemies of the cross of Christ and those who await a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. You would think both phrases would focus on the cross so you would say, enemies of the cross of Christ, those who love the cross of Christ. Or you would say, those who want to avoid the second coming and those who are looking forward to the second coming. But he doesn't. He, he focuses, enemies hate the cross of Christ. Those who love the cross of Christ fix their eyes on the second coming and future hope. Because the cross promises us forgiveness. But we're waiting the fulfillment of that forgiveness at the return of Jesus Christ. So the reason for this contrast is that the humiliation of the cross is transformed into glory at the coming of Jesus. And Matyar pointed out that the glory of Christ is only partly seen in the resurrection. This gives us a glimpse of power that we can understand as death is reversed. But Jesus currently has many enemies and his glory isn't seen everywhere. But when he returns... Every knee will bow, every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and the victory of the cross will be universal. Our salvation will be complete when we see him. Our bodies will change and our struggles with sin will be over. So those who have run to the cross for forgiveness will long for the day when Jesus returns. And we don't know when it is. Jesus told us to live every day in constant readiness. He said, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you do not expect. 
And it's so easy to live life and forget that Jesus is coming. But let's be ready for his return. I believe that's why Paul's last command is to stand firm. Verse 4.1, he says, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and my crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Paul has already told the church at the beginning of the letter, stand firm. In many ways, the theme of this letter is the joyful unity of the church striving to spread the gospel. And so he's told them at the beginning and now here towards the end, stand firm. It's a logical conclusion to what he's just said. Both there are enemies, so stand firm. And the Lord is returning, so stand firm. Paul is aware that not everyone will wait, that many will turn aside, and many never follow at all. So he urges them with the love of a father to stand firm, and we must do the same. As I close this message, many of you got CDs as you came in this morning. If you didn't get a CD, every household should get one before you leave. I want to ask you to listen to it this week. The reason is this. Two of the commands that Paul has given us focus on imitating good examples. But if you're going to imitate a good example, you have to be out on the lookout for them. And I'm convinced that's why he says, fix your eyes here. He knows there are a lot of other things that compete for our attention. It's easy to flip on the radio and just let whatever comes across the airwaves control your train of thought. That's not focusing. That's drifting. So I want to challenge you to listen to that CD. That CD contains a sermon that's based on the life of Adoniram Judson. Adoniram Judson is a missionary who saw the example of William Carey and said, William Carey went to India, I'm going to go to China. Adoniram Judson is an American Baptist missionary. He's part of our cultural heritage as American Baptists. So I want to urge you this week, listen to the story of his life and pray that we can follow his example in whatever capacity God has called us to. I hope that listening to this will inspire you to read biographies and listen to similar sermons. If you listen to this and like this, I'll get you more. I believe everyone here needs to look to the examples of faithful people. You've heard my list. Can you make a list of people that you're following after as a Christian? Are there ways that you can become more like the people who are further down the road following Christ than you are? Or are you more like the people who put their own needs first, who set their minds on earthly things? It's my prayer that as we focus on and follow after the example of faithful saints, we will expect great things from God and attempt great things for God. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your promises. We ask that you would help us to fix our eyes on people who are like Jesus. We pray that you would help us to imitate them. And Lord, we ask and expect that you will do great things. May we be blessed to be part of them. In Jesus' name, amen.